Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode, I give my thoughts on one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And today, I am completing a four-part series on Dick's 1957 novel, The Cosmic Puppets. The Cosmic Puppets was the fourth fourth novel Dick published. It's a fantasy novel. Its plot focuses on a man coming back to his hometown after living in a big city for most of his life. He comes to find the town changed and eventually learns that cosmic forces are doing battle in the town at... You know, and using his town as the site of their struggles. In fact, it is none other than the Zoroastrian deities themselves doing this battle. And as I talked about in the previous episodes, if Dick's first three published novels play with the idea of different political systems, and you can go back and listen to my series on the Solar Lottery, The Man Who Japed, and uh, The World Jones Made, which all deal with the interplay of authoritarian politics and the frontier, The Cosmic Puppets is really the beginning of a series of novels that are going to start to look at the theme of shifting realities, a theme that Dick is more well known for than his commentary on authoritarianism and political systems and the frontier. The other three novels that follow this all deal with shifting realities. It's going to be Eye in the Sky, Time Out of Joint, and The Man in the High Castle. They all deal with false fronts. So Cosmic Puppet has many interesting things to say on this, even though it's often overshadowed by these later novels. Now, in the first three parts of the series, I talked about how Ted Barton, our main character, came back to his childhood home of Millgate after leaving it as a child. His wife is disgusted that he comes, but he insists on a side trip. When he gets there, he finds that the entire town is different at every single level. Even the old buildings are different. He asks around, but sees he gets few satisfactory answers. He finally visits the newspaper and looks up the date that he left. He finds the reports of scarlet fever epidemic and reports that a child with his name died on that day, that the same day he remembers leaving town. He decides to stay in town and investigate what's going on. He takes a room at a boarding house and he runs into a boy named Peter Trilling, who is the son of the woman running the boarding house. And he discusses his power to control clay and other small creatures. He knows We know that this is something he can do because we've previously seen him playing out battles with a girl named Mary Mead, who also has the power to control insects, particularly bees. Peter tells Ted that he knows who he truly is. Ted talks to his wife on his phone, who is committed to divorcing him. Mary, meanwhile, spies on Peter using bees, which worries Peter that he may have made a mistake. Ted, meanwhile, talks to the doctor, Mr. Mead, who remembers the scarlet fever epidemic and confirms that it happened and confirms that a boy named Ted Barton did die. Peter then takes Ted out to the outskirts of town to show him a giant man dwelling through a haze of the mountains. Ted panics and tries to leave town, but is stopped. He returns and goes to a dive bar where he finds a man named William Christopher, who seems to remember the past and the changes that took place in the town. They get drunk together, and Christopher shows Ted how he can temporarily transform things into their original state. But it takes the ability to remember how things were exactly before the change. Ted vows to restore the town, using this ability since he believes that he remembers the town with an almost photographic memory. They go out to restore a park. This act is witnessed by Mary, who has learned how to capture Peter's 
clay golems and use them for herself. She encourages Christopher and Ted to go see the Wanderers. Mary puts part of her consciousness into a golem and then travels to a barn to spy on Peter. As she, her human side, her consciousness at this point is split between the golem and herself, she goes to a cafe. And there she is consumed by Peter's creatures, which consist of rats, snakes, and spiders. Ted and Christopher meet Mr. Mead, who tells them that the Wanderers are trying to restore the town. But he starts to express his worry that to restore the town would destroy the lives of the people living in Millgate since the reconstruction. What will happen to the new lives that were created when the town was remade? He also, though, confirms that what's going on in Millgate is a struggle between these Zoroastrian deities. The town, the remade town, is the domain of Ahriman, the destroyer god, the, the, the bad, evil god of the Zoroastrian tradition. And that may be very much who, who Ted saw at the outskirts of town. So Peter realizes after, after this, after the park's been transformed back to its original state, that Ted is a major threat. And because the park is now a place he has no power, his golems there actually become ungolemized. So this sets up everything leading up to the climax of the novel, which I'm going to talk about now. So Ted, next scene we see is Ted working with the Wanderers. And basically, he's trying to correct their old maps of old Millgate. So the Wanderers, we learn, have been conspiring to remake the town, but they don't remember things quite that well. They, they're the old residents, the Wanderers, which are like these ghost entities who float through the town. They don't quite remember it because they experienced a change, and so it's hard for them to remember. Ted, who grew up in the town and then came back later, has a very sharp memory of how it used to be. So he's trying to fix their old maps and, and, and correct them. The maps must be perfect or they will not work. The park was only restored because Christopher and his own recollection was 100% accurate. If any recollection is less than 100% accurate, the restoration will be temporary and not fully effective. The Wanderers come to realize that only Barton has this pristine memory. And the reason why is because he left the town before the change. They all begin to wonder how Barton was able to return to the town at all. Dr. Mead, meanwhile, observing their work, relishes the situation the Wanderers are in. They must trust Barton, not knowing that if he's a plant or even a super golem, which is something he considers, they are helpless. They're basically bound to, to work with this man, Ted. They move to a place where they can get a look at the entire town, and the plan is basically to use these maps and then have Ted transform the whole town in one kind of one moment. They discuss Peter and Mary's use of bees and moss and other creatures to stake their claim for various parts of the town in this kind of proxy war they've been fighting for a long time. They don't know how Peter plays into the powers behind the changes in Millgate, though. Hilda, one of the wanderers who talks to Mary from time to time, theorizes that the restoration of the town must follow the principles of something she calls M-kinetics, meaning the symbol of the map, a memory of the map, must be identical. If it is, this, if it is, if it's identical, then the symbol can be assumed to be the original. And this is what she calls M-kinetics. I don't know if there's any actual scientific theory behind this idea, but it's something that Dick throws in here, right? The idea that the, if the symbol is accurate, the, is 100% accurate, then it must be identical to the real, I guess. So the symbol can be the real. Viewing the town from above, they see Barton's recreation of the park is solely being undone. 
So whatever he did is not per, it's not a permanent. And this is a really frustrating reality for the Wanderers who begin to realize that maybe even Ted is not capable of permanently changing the town to how it used to be. In the face of their defeat, Barton and Miss Dr. Mead discuss the problem of evil. Why has Ormazd, the good Zoroastrian deity, the I guess the, the, the dominant force in the Millgate before the transformation, why does he not aid them in their restoration? Mead suggests that Peter is interfering with their work and later confesses that he did not want to stop Peter because he still fears what will happen to him after the restoration. He does not fully want to go back because he thinks he will be whooshed out of existence. Moments later, Barton and the Wanderers are under attack by moths, rats, spiders, and golems. And these little golems, these clay statue things moving around, actually have little swords and blades. They're able to fight off, or Barton's able to fight off some of these creatures with this restored tire iron. He talked about earlier in the novel he was going to restore this tire iron, which was kind of like a, an icon of the way uh, the town used to be. But he himself is eventually overwhelmed by the golems. Now, just briefly on the problem of evil issue, it's something that Dick was interested in from time to time. He, he wrote a lot about it. It shows up in his exegesis quite a lot. It's not something he says about much here. He just introduces it as an idea. So it's not a place you can go for a prolonged discussion of Dick's views on the problem of evil. But, of course, the Zoroastrians dealt with the problem of evil by creating this evil counterpart to Ahura Mazda or Ormazd. So anyways, this battle is raging. Barton's almost overtaken. A golem is about ready to strike. Ted Barton calls him by his name. And the golem tells him that the reconstruction he attempted was premature. And Barton, at this point, realizes that the golem is actually the avatar of Mary. So earlier in the novel, Mary split her consciousness into her human body and this golem. And Mary was killed. But the golem still lives, so there's still this merry golem walking around town. That's she's participating in the battle just to get close to Barton, and she then starts to talk to Barton. So Barton realizes that this golem is Mary. She explains that the real reason she brought Barton to Millgate was not quote unquote civic reconstruction, and she scolds him for focusing so much on remaking the town to the way it is, but rather the main goal is to restore her father, Ormazd, who is trapped in the form of Dr. Mead. And so that's, in a sense, why Millgate was transformed, was it was a way for Arman to trap his enemy into the form of Dr. Mead. Barton rushes to Mead's defense in the battle. And when he confronts Mead on his true identity, Mead transforms into a creature with a hawk-like beak, and he eventually emerges as Ormazd. Barton is pulled into Ormazd, quote, swept up into Ormazd's parabola. And he's able to escape by demanding that God remember Milgate. Ormazd and Ahriman confronted Petrota directly in a battle that is suggested will take on for millions of years. And there's actually a moment where you see these two cosmic entities, you know, rise up into the sky and begin to battle. And so the battle moves on from Milgate. Mary reveals herself as the daughter of Ormazd, Aramati. And she says that she was responsible for, for Barton arriving in Milgate. The Wanderers, although working hard, could not hope to restore the town. And the only hope was to really to break this clash or break this standoff between Ormazd and Ahriman. Barton restores Mary to another form. This time she manifests as a beautiful woman and Mary departs. And I talked about in the last episode, there's... And now with Mary transformed into 
a beautiful woman. That's not this deity's true form, I suppose. But then it's okay for Barton to kind of flirt with her. So it's a bit creepy, actually, because you knew this character as Mary, a young girl through most of the novel. And then at the end, there's Ted Barton, whose wife is leaving him currently. He kind of is flirting with this god who, you know, he only now suddenly became a woman. So it's a bit awkward, I think, for, for modern readers to, to look at. But anyways, um, she manifests as this beautiful woman. Mary is gone, and it's just our, our Marty. And that, that kind of brings us to the end of the novel. So Ted Barton prepares to leave Millgate. He is observing the continuing restoration project. So with, you know, now that... Ahriman and Ormazd are back in their cosmic battle. There's balance again. Milgate is solely restored. And so, you know, the reconstruction is taking a while, but it's being returned to the old way. I don't think he, Dick Evers fully answers what happens to these people who were created since the new town was created. I, I think, in fact, they are kind of wished out of existence. It becomes, the town becomes the domain of the wanderers again. But I, I don't know how they experience time and that. It just goes back to how it was 20 years earlier, I suppose. Barton and William Christopher share a sentimental farewell. Barton decides that the town will be best without him, so he leaves. He realizes that his marriage has probably collapsed. He thinks about R. Marty, who he knows will be everywhere, and he takes comfort in knowing that he will be constantly reminded of her. And so that's, that's the end of the novel. Uh, it's very short. It's only... In the Mariner edition, only 136 pages. So you really can sort of read it in just one sitting or two sittings, depending on how fast you read. Um, so it, it doesn't, it's not a huge investment of time to look at it. And it's significant because I think it's his first novel really taking on directly the question of shifting realities. There's one moment in The Man Who Japed where there's some kind of appearance of shifting realities, but it turns out it's just a, a facade put up. This is the beginning of a series of novels that are going to take seriously this idea that, that the world we live in is not real. Now, as I've been saying throughout this series on the Cosmic Puppets, I think this is a novel really about urban planning. And I think one of the things that makes the Cosmic Puppet enjoyable and that one thing that really touches us right away when we pick up the novel is that Barton's experience in the first chapter of seeing his hometown as entirely different is something we very oh, we often often experience, right? We, you know, especially we go off to college or we go off to work and we come back and visit our hometown and it's changed and we feel a bit sad that it's changed or shocked how things have changed or it's not as nice and pleasant as we remember. And then we wonder why are these things changing? And sometimes it's just because we get older and we change, but often it's because actually there are forces at work changing towns. There are capitalists, urban planners, builders, developers, urban renewalists, gentrifiers, on and on, right? These are actual real forces. And often they're much bigger than us. They are, you know, like gods, the gods of, of the city. In this liquid world where people often do move away from the towns of their birth, they find returning to these communities to be disturbing. When you experience these changes day by day from inside, they're less jarring. And that's sort of the situation the wanderers are in. Now, who has the right to transform cities? This is a, an important question. We're, we're entering a world where 
by the end of this century, I think it's going to be 75% of the world's population will be living in cities. So we'll be, we've been always been a, a rural people, a people of the countryside. And it's only the last couple hundred years as this has begun to change. Yes, cities have always been central to civilization, but most people have lived in the countryside. We're becoming rapidly an urban civilization. And currently, the way things stand, the people who have the power of the city, the, the so-called right to the city, are a handful of people, right? Largely the people with money and, and capital. Yet people have theorized this idea of like the right to the city. And this may be one of the more important issues facing our civilization. And a lot of people have written about this. David Harvey, uh, I think he's a geographer, but he, he's a Marxist geographer. And he's talked a lot about the right to the city and urban revolution and how cities can be made to be more sustainable socially. And then, of course, this is something that Murray Bookchin and the social ecologist cared a lot about. I mean, Murray Bookchin, a really great thinker, was obsessed with with the city as the center of of identity and a civic consciousness. And he he wrote whole books about the polis in the medieval city. And that's kind of closer to his ideal of what a city would look like compared to these kind of urban sprawlish depositories of capital that we live in today. But in Millgate and in our own urban centers, the forces that are responsible for the changes in geography are all of them quite distant, right? Urban planners are the gods of the postmodern city. They can destroy entire neighborhoods, erect massive monumental architecture. You know, you think about Stalinistic architecture. Well, you know, you go to many cities around the world and you see urban planners and developers of, you know, building these massive apartment complexes, which would have made uh, the the most aesthetically desensitive, unsensitive architect from the Stalinist era happy. And they control how our cities will look and how they'll function. And I talked, I think, in the last episode about Robert Caro's book, The Power Broker, which is about Robert Moses and how the people who develop cities and engage in urban planning are often unaccountable and often uh, rooted into the urban power structure, but not democratically elected. But the novel also shows that resistance to this sometimes is reactionary. The wanderers float through the city like the unknown and largely unseen victims of our urban civilization, the underclass, the homeless, the excluded. And often our cities are designed to keep these people silent, to keep them powerless and to keep them unseen. The problem is that for all these people, they want to return to the way the city used to be, right? They're in a sense, a bit like the Trump voter who maybe wants to go back to the 1950s, the good old days, not knowing that that's we should be trying to go forward. We try to try to improve things, not necessarily go back to the, how things were 50 years ago. Barton and Christopher spend much of the book, actually, trying to remember how the city was and restore it to how to how it was before. And he's actually scolded at the end of the novel by Mary, who says to him that your job is not civic reconstruction it's it's liberation it's actually freeing um or or mazd and then freeing the people of the town it, it's a it's an it's a story of liberation not one of just going back to how things were and the, and the problem is they're in you know just restoring the old is not very creative it's just a romanticized ideal city of his youth or town of his youth they may be able to capable of pushing powerful forces out of the city but all it leaves is the stagnant place of the past so again, there's, there's just a lot to say about urban planning and, and urban reconstruction and gentrification. And this is a novel to go to if you want an interesting 
fantasy approach to this. Uh, of course, there's other works that have done this a lot better since, but you know, this is really Philip K. Dick's manifesto on on the right to the city. It seems to me. Thematically, we also have avatars. It's not really revealed to the end of the novel that we are talking about avatars here. Uh, Mary, the daughter of Ormazd, is an avatar. Dr. Mead is a sense an avatar, although he's disillusioned through much of the novel. Peter Trilling is apparently an avatar of Ahriman. Not what really happens to Peter is not really explained. It seems Dick needed like another 20 pages, I think, to this novel to maybe fully explain some things. Most of the struggle, though, is acted out in these childhood games. Peter controls golems, which can be turned into avatars, spiders, snakes, and rats. Mary controls moths and bees, so Peter's is like on the ground and Mary's in the sky. Mary eventually uses the golem as her own avatar to spy on Peter. And, you know, it's, it's a kind of an interesting dualistic world, I guess, and there might be metaphors here for, you know, two-party political system in a way. Both kind of serving the same system and the same lie, but doing so from maybe different points of view, slightly different perspectives. And of course, we have in the cyberspace all kinds of opportunities to think about avatars. And, you know, there's other novels that do this really well, like Snow Crash, for instance, where, you know, people spend much of their time in these avataric realms. Now, another theme I talked a lot about in this series has been family. Again, this is not something that's fully mentioned, it's, it's, but it's always in the backdrop and it's hard to avoid. It's just how broken this marriage is and how dysfunctional and weird it is. It's, it brackets the entire novel. He talks about it at the beginning and the end, and then there's the events in the middle, but it is thought about at both sides. So it's almost like Dick insists on putting it in. And as I said before, this is a short novel. He, he doesn't have to put waste five, six pages on a broken marriage. He could have used that to do other things. You don't need the wife for this story to work at all. But he puts it in there. Maybe it's partially a foil for Armati, Mary, who Barton has, seems to have a thing for by the end of the novel. But this marriage also fails in the most matter-of-fact way. It's just Peg Barton doesn't want to experience her husband's youth full town. And it's such a stupid thing. He just wants a side trip to his hometown. And she complains about it the whole way. You know, what kind of person doesn't want to give their spouse just that basic pleasure? You know, when it's not even a big burden. It's not like he wanted to take a whole trip there. He just wanted a side trip to visit. She sits out the novel in a hotel on the phone with the divorce attorney the whole time because she didn't want to. And then she experiences this great mystery, which she's completely indifferent to. So she comes off as a bit of a villain of sorts, disrupting Ted's legitimate desire to visit his hometown. But if we want to look at more philosophically, Barton is obsessed with the past. He's obsessed with things that are long past and long dead and long gone. And he is, in a sense, the reactionary who just wants to bring things back to how they were. He's upset that his town changed. And on one hand, we can sympathize a little bit with Peg because she's right in the degree that, you know, he, he's kind of like that well, Al Bundy, right? Always living out the time he won one great high school football game, right? That's the high point in his life. And so he's always kind of stuck in the past. 
She even says to him at one point, my God, I'd wish you'd, you'd forget at least something. I'm so tired of hearing all the details of your childhood, all your lovely facts about Millgate, Virginia. Sometimes I just feel like screaming. So Ted Barton's obsession with his hometown is actually something that's filtered into his marriage on a more regular basis than just this one side trip. So as nasty as Peg looks, let's give her a little bit of credit. Uh, maybe she has been burdened by this obsession about Millgate for years and years. And then Barton himself seems indifferent and aloof as, as other husbands that Dick presents in some of his early stories. Barton's failure to care when his wife leaves him is more evidence is more evidence that he has infantilized himself, basically made himself a child with his obsession about memory. And this is the only thing that might make his apparent attraction towards Mary palatable is that if he himself is basically living as a young boy, um, obsessed with the past, obsessed with his youth. And he, I think here in general, we could say this is a bit of a dark side to Dick's focus on memory. He talks a lot about memory in some of his novels, but it's not always the best way to break free of the lives of the world. It's not a liberatory force always. For instance, in a novel we're going to look at shortly, Time Out of Joint, it's not enough for the character to realize he's not living in 1950s suburbia. There's a deeper liberation in the backdrop of the story, and that is is the frontier and exploration of the universe and represented by the people living on the moon. And I'll, I'll talk about that when we get to the novel, Time Out of Joint. So finally, as I, you know, this is a novel. It's probably one of Dick's early novels that is taken a little bit more seriously than some of the others we've already looked at. And these themes that Dick talks about here come up again and again in his work. So it does seem to foreshadow a lot of Dick's more well-known works. Themes like memory, themes like religion and false realities are really clearly stated here. It's interesting. I, I think it's worth reading, especially if you're a Philip Dick fan. I like how it talks about the city. I, I think for me, that's what it comes come down to. It's really foreshadowing the late capitalist conquest of our cities by unaccountable tyrannies. And here the cosmic puppets you know, are, are us. And who are our puppet masters? And I think that's the question we need to ask. Obviously, they're not Zoroastrian deities. There's something else at work here. But we're experiencing the same pressures. We have urban underclasses like the Wanderers. We have our towns changing without our will. You know, and that's because of undemocratic forces structured within our city politics and our, and our city economies. Yet the answer to this isn't just to go to the past. There has to be something else. It's, it's not that we need to go back to the, the, the old Millgate. We need, in a sense, a third Millgate, right? And that's something that maybe will happen after the close of the novel. We're not given that story. But I think the hopefulness in this novel is that there is perhaps a third Millgate um, that can be remade in the interests of, you know, in, under the, the dreams of the people, not just the memory of the people, but the dreams of the people that live in it. And so that's my, my final thoughts on this novel. So thank you so much for listening. If you have your own comments about the Cosmic Puppets, please leave them below or put a review on iTunes. Or if you enjoyed this, please share it um, or subscribe to my channel. Um, my next episodes, I'll be getting doing a series on Eye in the Sky. I think I'll probably do a full six part series on 
eye in the sky, but I'm not sure yet. I have to break it up and see how you want to look at it. But that'll be the next. It's going to carry on this theme of false realities. It's going to also talk. It's going to talk about utopias, which I think is an interesting um, side of that story. But that one, it's a lot of fun. So I'll be back shortly with the beginning of a series on a second novel that Dick wrote in 1957, Eye in the Sky. So thanks again for listening. My tired thoughts That leaving dies, that leaving